0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're covering the first US president of the show, and by that I mean we're covering the seventh president of the United States of America, Andrew Jackson. Now, if you're from another country and haven't heard of Andrew Jackson before, that's alright. He wasn't in Hamilton, nor was he one of the more recent guys. If you're from the U.S. and didn't learn about him, shame on your history teacher. Andrew Jackson has a very strange legacy as both a man of the working class people and as an absolute scumbag whose policies greatly further disenfranchise the Native American population. I actually have an interesting relationship with Andrew Jackson. I'm not related to him or anything, thank God. No. So, in fourth grade, we had to do a report about a president of the United States, and each kid in my class was given a random president. I got Andrew Jackson. Now, as I was just a kid, I didn't really understand most of what I was reading when it came to Jackson's history. I didn't really comprehend that he was the guy behind the Trail of Tears, nor did I really understand what the Trail of Tears even was. If you don't know what that is, we'll get into it. It was a rough time. I only saw stuff praising Jackson's manliness. I thought it was hilarious that he was this cantankerous old misanthrope who kicked partygoers out of the White House. I mean, he took a bullet near the heart and stayed alive for an additional several decades. So obviously my report was not about the fact that he was… deeply problematic but now as an adult I can redo my fourth grade report from a more critical eye. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to America of the early 19th century in Hickory Dickory Donkey. We're going to divide the background history lesson of this episode into two separate parts. First, we'll talk about the American two-party system. Yay, everyone's favorite topic. Second will be the state of the Native American population in the early 19th century. So we'll kick off with the political parties of America. So in the present day, America is under the control of two main parties, the Republicans, the conservative party, and the Democrats, the liberal party, but in my opinion, it's just the I'm not a Republican party. There are more parties, as there always has been throughout history, but those are the two with any real control. America has had two main political parties basically since we started having presidents. If you know the musical Hamilton, then you know there were two original parties the federalists organized by alexander hamilton and john adams and the democratic republicans which were also just called republicans but were not the modern day republican party organized by thomas jefferson and james madison neither party fell into modern day ideas of conservative and liberal parties the federalists favored a national government in the banks of new england which would make it sound like the modern day democrats Meanwhile, the Democratic Republicans favored laws that would help the farmers in Southern America while being very anti-British. In actuality, the big thing to define each party was that the Federalists were kinda okay with the British but didn't support the French Revolution, and the Republicans hated England and supported France. After George Washington left office, the Federalists dominated American politics until Thomas Jefferson was elected in the election of 1800. The Federalists were put on the defensive within the government and stayed there for a while until the party completely collapsed after the War of 1812, during which they briefly returned as a viable party for those against the war before eventually completely dissolving. Without an actual opposition, the Democratic Republicans enjoyed their time as essentially the only political party with any sort of power in America. However, even within that one party there were several factions, and those factions would eventually grow more competitive until the Democratic-Republicans would also find themselves falling apart, but that's a story for later in the episode. Let's now move on to the Native Americans living in the United States around the turn of the 19th century. As with basically all of American history, they weren't doing great. But we're going to look at a few tribes who were doing, I guess, slightly better? These tribes were the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, and the Seminole people. They were known by the, in retrospect, not-so-great name, Five Civilized Tribes. They recalled this due to the fact that they had found a way to more easily integrate themselves with the white Americans living in the American Southeast. For the past few centuries, Native Americans had occasionally adopted aspects of the white immigrants' culture when it was advantageous to their people. The tribes that lived closer in proximity to the white Americans eventually took on more and more aspects of the burgeoning American society until they began to look similar. They practiced Christianity, created centralized governments, and even intermarried with the white Americans. However, America will be America, so it didn't take long for the white Americans to start coming up with an ultimatum for the indigenous people. Some people, such as George Washington, started formulating laws that would force native tribes to 100% assimilate into American culture. Those that didn't would have to leave the land their people had lived on for generations. In George Washington's eyes, the native people were equal to white Americans, that whole all-men-are-created-equal shtick. It was just that he viewed their society as inferior which... I mean, yeah, that sucks. Well, the citizens of the newly-created United States soon began occupying land that was home to tribes that had not 100% Americanized. Armed conflicts arose. Well, who do you think the US government was going to back? its citizens and their desire to farm or the native americans who were seen in a separate but equal sort of light other early presidents took similar steps towards what would eventually happen to the five civilized tribes but it wasn't until andrew jackson that the u.s started its true reign of terror Jackson was born in 1767, before the United States was even a country, to Scots-Irish parents from the province of Ulster in Ireland, so Northern Ireland. He was the first child in his family to be born in America, specifically what is now a region that crosses the borders of both North and South Carolina. His father died in a logging accident just three weeks before his birth, so young Andrew was raised by his mother. His mother apparently wanted Andrew to get a job in the Presbyterian Church. She even had him schooled by local ministers. This meant that Andrew Jackson was highly educated for the time, maybe even learning both Greek and Latin. However, he was a highly mercurial man even in his youth and it was clear that the clergy was no place for the future president. Then, war. The American Revolution to be precise. Both Andrew and his older brothers would serve in some capacity against the British Army. Andrew's oldest brother, Hugh, fought in the Battle of Stono Ferry in June of 1779. He was severely injured but would actually die of heat exhaustion following the battle. Later, Andrew and his other brother, Robert, were captured by the British Army. Both brothers were treated harshly and both contracted smallpox. Andrew's mother, Elizabeth, eventually got her two sons back during a prisoner exchange. She was able to nurse Andrew back to health, but Robert died shortly after he arrived home in 1781. To make matters even worse, not much later, Elizabeth Jackson contracted cholera and passed away. At only 14 years old, Andrew Jackson was the only member of his family left alive having his very livelihood uprooted and destroyed by the british created a burning hatred for britain and everything it stood for in young andrew and would basically inform his values and political stances for the rest of his life so yeah his life was extremely rough basically from the get-go and i'm not saying this to be like oh you should feel sorry for him i mean i guess you can because losing everything by age 14 is something no one should ever have to go through But also, maybe don't allow yourself to feel bad for him for too long? After America won the war and started getting itself together, Jackson decided to return to school, this time to study law rather than religion. By 1787, he was practicing law as a prosecuting attorney in what was then North Carolina but in a region that would become the state of Tennessee. This career path allowed him a fair bit of upward social mobility. Most of the cases he was involved with were over land deals, specifically the new American citizens in the region buying land from the local Cherokee and Chickasaw tribes. Other grand highlights from this time include Andrew Jackson buying his first slave and engaging in his first duel. Neither side was injured or even fired at each other. Sometime in the late 1780s or early 1790s, Jackson met his future wife, Rachel Donaldson. Actually, Rachel Donaldson Robards because she was currently married to a man named Captain Lewis Robards. The couple separated in 1789 but were still legally married. It was during this time that Rachel and Andrew started getting romantically involved. Robards used that new relationship as the means for filing divorce from Rachel, citing her infidelity, even though they were Prob's gonna get divorced anyway. In 1794, now that Rachel and Captain Robards were divorced, Andrew and Rachel were married. Two years later, they bought their first plantation in what would be the true beginning of Jackson's massive investment in the slave trade business. Also in 1796, Andrew Jackson officially joined the Democratic-Republican Party. Jackson began his political career with a bang. When Tennessee was granted statehood in 1796, he was chosen as its member of the House of Representatives in Congress. And guess who Jackson decided to go against during this time? None other than George Washington himself. Even though Washington was now president and hailed as the hero of the nation, a coalition of Democratic-Republicans gathered forces to become a thorn in his side, Jackson being among that group. He opposed a piece of legislation called the Jay Treaty, which was a whole thing that basically smoothed things over with the British after the war. Remember, Jackson hated the British, and voted against a notion that basically publicly recognized Washington as a hero. Among other things, he also voted for Tennessee's ability to mobilize its state army against Native Americans, and this was all within his first year as a U.S. representative. Due to all this, in 1797, Jackson was elected as a senator to the state of Tennessee. He served for half a year before dropping out of that position and returning to his home state. After serving as a judge and major general of the Tennessee militia for a few years, in 1804, Jackson turned his interests back to land cultivation, aka owning slaves. In 1804, he owned nine slaves. By 1820, he owned 100. He also actively participated in the slave trade business. While basically every white man of the United States owned slaves at this point in history, such as basically every founding father, Jackson was one of the few early presidents who actively participated in the business. Two years after Jackson decided to get into agriculture, he attended a horse race. During the race, he overheard a local attorney named Charles Dixon refer to both Jackson and his wife as bigamists, calling back to the fact that they'd gotten together while Rachel was technically still married to her first husband. Jackson was outraged and challenged Dixon to a duel. Since dueling was illegal in Tennessee, the two men had to cross the border into Kentucky. During the duel, Dixon fired first and hit Jackson in the chest. The bullet was said to have shattered against his breastbone but would lodge itself near his heart. After a moment, in which I'm assuming that everyone was very surprised that he was still alive, Andrew Jackson returned fire and killed his opponent. Surprisingly, this even actually tarnished his reputation. I mean, even I have to admit that this is a pretty cool episode, but I guess he did kill a man. And, boy, would he soon get to kill a lot of people. The War of 1812 began in, you guessed it, 1812. At its most reductive definition, the War of 1812 is just the American Revolution Part 2. But let's get a bit more in-depth. Even though America attempted to smooth things over with the Jay Treaty, Things didn't necessarily stay hunky-dory and peaceful, especially when it came to trade routes, especially America's trade routes with France. A series of trade embargoes bounced back and forth between America, Britain, and France. These only exacerbated the growing tensions between England and America, something that France, under the rule of Napoleon Bonaparte, actually seemed to be fueling. On top of all this, Britain was urging Native American tribes to rebel against the encroaching forces of the United States. It all came to a head with the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811 when American forces fought against a Native coalition in modern-day Indiana. Believing that the Native Americans were supplied weapons by Britain, America declared war on their former colonizers in 1812. Most of the war would see fighting against British forces in Canada, then a British colony, and native armies in the West. So what does this have to do with Andrew Jackson? Well, as a Democratic-Republican, he was all for this war. There was actually a bit of a tense moment within American politics where the two political parties were at each other's throats over whether or not to even go to war, with the Republicans favoring the war. Jackson immediately chimed in that he would gather volunteers to join in the war efforts, but his offer was turned down. And despite it being called the War of 1812, it did not end within 1812. After initial heavy losses further north in January of 1813, Jackson was finally allowed to gather those volunteers. And he did. A whole 2,000 fighting soldiers. He led them straight to New Orleans so that they could fight against the British on America's western border. Only to be told that they weren't needed. Undeterred, Jackson turned his army around and marched north to fight in Nashville. His unyielding resolve and toughness quickly earned him the nickname Hickory, and as he aged, that nickname would become Old Hickory. Oh, he was also shot again during this time and almost died. Almost died. After Nashville, Jackson was ordered to help put down a group of native rebels called the Red Sticks. The Red Sticks were members of the Muscogee Creek Confederacy, a group of tribes that had wanted to maintain peace with America. The Red Sticks weren't too keen on peace. Thus began the war within the War of 1812 known as the Red Stick War. Jackson continued powering through this conflict even when he had lost over half his men. But once the actual US military came in to aid him, Jackson defeated Red Stick's military forces. But he didn't stop there. Jackson began burning Red Stick buildings and selling the tribe's women and children as slaves to other Native Americans. After being appointed as a Brigadier General, Jackson received the authority to enforce the Treaty of Fort Jackson, which forced the Creek Confederacy to give up 23 million acres of land to America. After devastating the Creek Confederacy, Jackson returned his army to New Orleans because he heard rumors that the British were planning on attacking the city. Once he got to New Orleans, he enacted martial law. The British forces arrived in December of 1814. Now, here's a fun fact, maybe not so fun. England and America were actually starting to think about ending the war by this point but one of the British generals commanded another general to march on New Orleans if that was ever going to happen. Pretty messed up. Though fighting would go on throughout the rest of late December, the true battle of New Orleans did not commence until January 8th, 1815. By this time, the Americans and the British had both signed the Treaty of Ghent, which was the peace treaty to end the war. Congress had not yet ratified the treaty and wouldn't until February. But yes, the Battle of New Orleans technically happened after the war had ended. It was a devastating defeat for the British as they were forced to approach from a level field while the Americans fired on them with cannons from behind a raised wall. But even after the battle ended in an American victory, Jackson refused to end martial law. He even had six militiamen executed when they attempted to leave the city. It got to the point where some Creole Native Americans who had served alongside American troops registered as French citizens so they would be allowed to leave. He did not want to end his own local reign of minor autocracy until he received word that Congress had ratified the peace treaty. To the public, he was a hero. To New Orleans, though, he was seen as a monster. after the War of 1812 ended, America was forced to downsize its military due to a financial panic, meaning Jackson was forced to retire back to his plantation. He served in several more political positions across the American South and further forced Native Americans out of their land. Things suddenly changed for Andrew Jackson when he agreed to a plan formed by one of his Democratic-Republican friends to run for president in the 1824 election. By this point, the Republicans controlled American politics. The Federalist Party had collapsed towards the end of the War of 1812. This meant that every candidate running for the presidency was a member of the Republican Party. Due to how large the party had gotten, it started fracturing apart into factions that were coalescing around the major candidates who would compete in the election. The final four contenders for the 1824 election, yes things worked differently back then and four legitimate candidates could be chosen, and all from the same party, were Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, Speaker of the House Henry Clay, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford, and Andrew Jackson, who at the time was once more Senator of Tennessee. Jackson won both the popular vote and the Electoral College. And yet he didn't win the election. Actually, no one won the election because the proper amount of electoral votes had not been reached by any candidate. As per the Constitution, the vote was sent to the House of Representatives to vote on the top three out of the four candidates. Henry Clay came in fourth, so he was kicked out. However, he held a bit of political sway and believed Andrew Jackson would ruin America if he was president. He didn't believe Jackson's reputation as a war hero made him fit for office. It was actually Jackson's war hero title that had gotten him that far in the election. That and his desire to rid Washington DC of political insiders out of touch with the common people. Drain the swamp, if you will. Henry Clay threw his support behind John Quincy Adams. Clay's support garnered Adams enough support to win enough votes in the House and become the sixth president of the United States. He was the only president ever elected who lost both the popular vote and the electoral college. The vote had been split pretty cleanly along geographic lines. Adams had the support of the North and the East, while Jackson had the support of the South and the West. It didn't take too long before that division would shape itself into a new pair of political parties. John Quincy Adams, who had actually been raised as a Federalist by the way, would be the last Democratic-Republican President in US history. It was time for a new political age to begin. Soon after John Quincy Adams was elected as president, the remnants of the Democratic Republican Party began to form a new two-party system. The Federalists and the Republicans were referred to as the First Party System. This new Second Party System was composed of the followers of Andrew Jackson, known as the Democratic Party, and the followers of Adams slash everyone else who opposed Jackson, known as the Whig Party. And that's Whig spelled W-H-I-G. The support behind the new Democratic Party was overwhelming among the rural and middle-class voters of America. So much so that Jackson was already voted as a candidate for the 1828 election by 1825. And it didn't help Adams's cause for re-election that the sixth president was seen as fairly incompetent and out of touch with Jackson's supporters. By the time we actually get to the election of 1828, classical two-party political activities continued with an intense round of mudslinging along the campaign trail. Jackson used Adams' position as a social elite to further ostracize him from the working-class citizens of the South and the West. Meanwhile, Adams and his supporters brought out every awful thing they could think of when it came to Jackson. Some were true while others were bending the truth. Adams continued, stating that a soldier was unfit for political leadership and even questioned Jackson's position as a war hero. His dealings with slavery and the slave trade were brought out, but slightly exaggerated to make him sound worse, though that's not hard when dealing with slavery even if we're talking about the 1820s here. There were also stories about how during Jackson's war against the Native Americans he engaged in cannibalism, Uh, he didn't by the way. But also probably to be expected, the old stories of Andrew and his wife being bigamists also started surfacing again. I'm sure Old Hickory could take all this being thrown his way, but the same could not be said for his wife Rachel. The stress of the campaign trail soon got to her, causing her health to take a downturn. Uh, We'll jump back to that in just a second. Considering Andrew Jackson was insanely popular and John Quincy Adams wasn't, it shouldn't be too surprising to learn that the election of 1828 was basically a blowout in Jackson's favor. He was elected as the 7th President of the United States with John C. Calhoun, a man with a strong political resume, as his Vice President. Also funnily enough, Calhoun had been Adams' Vice President. Also to slip it in here, it's believed that during the election of 1828 is where we see the donkey become the symbol of the Democrats. One of the favorite terms Jackson's rivals used against him was that he was a jackass. Instead of getting mad, it said that Jackson took the term in stride and decided to use a donkey as his personal symbol. It would be a few more decades before it became the party's official symbol, but this is where it said the donkey got its start however just before jackson was set to be inaugurated rachel suffered a stroke and passed away most people believe this stroke was brought on by the stress caused by all the accusations thrown at her and her husband even at her funeral jackson made it very clear he believed this to be the case openly condemning his political enemies so yeah that's quite a way to begin your presidency Alright, we've done the lead up for long enough. It's time to actually get into the presidency of Andrew Jackson. His entire tenure as President of the United States, as well as the times preceding under the Democrats of the early 1800s, led to a concept called Jacksonian Democracy. America of the early 1800s was a time of massive change in terms of land expansion and agricultural revolutions. More people, better farming techniques, the gears of capitalism were really starting to ramp up. And there still existed a massive growing class of political elites, particularly in the Northeast. Andrew Jackson seemingly understood all of this and particularly stood against the rise of those elites. Jacksonian democracy is a bit of a loaded term. In a sense, it meant a massive expansion of democracy within America with the massive caveat that you had to be a white man in order to get the benefits of democracy. Jackson strove to increase voting rights, again for white men, and was particularly outspoken about heavy rotation of political offices in order to prevent the growth of the political elite. Along with that, he thought that the Supreme Court should have term limits and that the Electoral College should be abolished. I'm not the man's biggest fan, but I will give him the W for that thought process. In theory, he stood for the idea of the common man, asterisk, white, of the nation. However, in practice, let's get into it. Even though Jackson stood against those who had long ago made names for themselves in Washington, it didn't mean he was beyond the slightest bit of corruption when it came to choosing who would help him out. He was infamous for implementing the spoils system, which basically means giving out political positions to your most ardent supporters. Jackson did not invent this system by any means, but the term is very much synonymous with his presidency. So while his presidential cabinet was not filled with the same type that had served under Adams and previous presidents, there were still internal problems. There was a whole situation referred to as the petticoat affair that had to deal with the wife of jackson's secretary of war i don't have the time to go into it here but look it up it was really bizarre and goes to show that clicks and damaging rumors have always existed while another massive event was sparked during jackson's first term as president let's move on to his second term for our next topic so yes jackson was elected for a second term Once again, the election for Jackson's second term in 1832 was a complete blowout in Jackson's favor. His opponent was Henry Clay, the man who had thwarted Jackson's attempt to become president in 1824. Clay hoped that some of Jackson's more unpopular policies, which we'll get into in just a second, would make the incumbent president unpopular. However, we know that would not be the case. While the anti-Jacksonians would eventually become the Whig Party, in 1832 they were known as the National Republican Party, which is still not the modern-day Republican Party, by the way. So anyway, Jackson wins and his Vice President is another man who helped develop the Democrats, Martin Van Buren. But now that Jackson is in office for part two of his career, let's talk about his war against a major American institution. The National Bank. When Jackson was elected president, the Second Bank of America was more or less the beating heart of the U.S. economy. The First Bank of America had been set up by Alexander Hamilton during Washington's presidency but had not been renewed for its charter during 1811. Well, then the War of 1812 happened and the economy was messed up, so in 1816, the Second Bank of America was created to help regulate American currency. It was a private institution that functioned as a public good. As to be expected of such an institution, it was filled with the public elite. It had also been championed by Henry Clay. Some of the opponents to the Second Bank of America argued that it was upending the agrarian way of life in the South meaning that it could also eventually end up as a tool to rid America of slavery. Well, the idea of American elites looking to rid America of Jackson's massive private slavery business obviously meant he had to intervene. By the end of his first year in office, Jackson had kicked off the Bank War. The bank's charter was set to expire in 1836. Jackson sought every effort to make sure that the charter was not renewed through Congress. He even went so far as to call the bank unconstitutional, which was not the case. In fact, the bank had actually been deemed constitutional via the Supreme Court case McCulloch v. Maryland. This obviously did not stop Jackson's public campaign against the bank, though. Henry Clay had hoped during the 1832 election that Jackson's war against the second bank would get people against him. However, many people in the West and South had always felt unrepresented by the industrial interests of the bank, so it was essentially a non-starter to make that one of his major campaign platforms against President Jackson. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Clay quickly went into overdrive and delivered a measure to Congress to renew the bank's charter in 1832, two years earlier than it was supposed to happen. The measure passed, but Jackson quickly stepped in to veto the renewed charter. After he was inaugurated for his second term, Jackson sought to end the Treasury Department's dealings with the bank. When his Treasury Secretary refused, Jackson replaced him with someone who would. Jackson's opponents, now known as the Whig Party, started calling the President King Andrew I due to the fact that he had done all of this without congressional approval. However, Congress would eventually go on to approve Jackson's hopes of ending the government's interactions with the Second Bank of America. Even without the bank, Jackson managed to pay off the national debt in 1835, the only time in American history that this was ever done. In 1836, the government was no longer doing business with the Second Bank. Unfortunately, this caused the Panic of 1837. Without a regulated currency, America fell into an economic recession that lasted about seven years. Many banks closed across the country, businesses failed, and there was mass unemployment all around. It was very clear that Andrew Jackson's bank war had been the cause of this. The economy would only really pick up again with the gold rush out in California about a decade later. Economic factors aside, let's now talk about Jackson's biggest mark on history, the Indian Removal Act. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, the American South was also the homeland of the five civilized tribes. Though they were surrounded on all sides by America, these tribes viewed their lands as autonomous nations. Well, that wasn't going to stand for the US government. By the time Jackson was elected president, southern states had passed legislation enforcing US laws on native land. As a man who had already done that during the War of 1812, Jackson was in full support of this measure. In 1830, Jackson's anti-native policies came to a head with the Indian Removal Act. It was exactly what it sounded like. Under this bill, it would see Native Americans removed from their homes and forced to move west across the Mississippi River, mostly to be relocated into what is modern-day Oklahoma. The law was pretty controversial for its time, and it barely passed its way through Congress. In theory, the act was only supposed to allow for civil discussions that would see the Native American tribes negotiate fair settlements with the American government that would see them relocated. In actuality, this was far from the case. Most of the negotiations were corrupt. Some weren't even made with approval of tribal leaders. And of course, there were times when the U.S. military simply enacted its own terms of violent removal. The Choctaw people were the first tribe fully removed in 1831. They were followed by the Seminoles the next year, then the Creeks in 1834, and then the Chickasaws in 1837. Jackson would not seek out a third term, which was possible back then, but the Indian Removal Act continued after his presidency in 1838 with the removal of the Cherokee tribe. Though this removal was carried out under the term of Jackson's successor, the ground was laid for the Trail of Tears by Andrew Jackson. Tens of thousands of Native Americans were forced from their homes and made to move out west, having to march over 2,000 miles to reach their new federally enforced territory. Also, it wasn't just Native Americans who were affected by this. The local tribes had also participated in the slave trade, meaning many black slaves were also forced to walk that distance. The relocation efforts took place over the course of two decades. There would be resistance from the tribes, Wars flared across the American South, but the wars were fought in vain. Populations among the tribes plummeted. Of the nearly 20,000 people living in Choctaw land, only 5,000 to 6,000 managed to make it to Oklahoma. Out of the Creek, who had numbered over 23,000 with their slave population, only several hundred made it out west. Several hundred of the several thousand Chickasaw survived. The Cherokee Nation population was reduced from almost 20,000 to only 1,500. The Seminoles, who also had about 700 of their people killed during their attempted pushback, numbered less than 500 out of originally more than 5,000 people. There is no way to call the Indian Removal Act anything other than genocide as most of the removal actually occurred after his presidency there are historians who tried to lessen jackson's role in the trail of tears his successors had the power to stop it that's true but they were only continuing the operations that had been started by andrew jackson I said, Jackson did not seek a third term for presidency. It fit with his stance on politicians not serving extended times in the government. He handpicked his vice president, Martin Van Buren, as his successor. Van Buren would win the election of 1836, continuing the reign of the Democrats. After Van Buren came James Polk, another follower of Jacksonian politics. Though he remained retired on his plantation for the rest of his life, Jackson continued to give political advice to the Democrats until his death in 1845. Andrew Jackson is one of the most complicated figures of American history. Obviously, a lot of bad politics were enacted during his two terms. Unfortunately, it was also under this man the ideas of democracy were actually allowed to flourish. He sent the United States into an economic downturn. He sought to make American politics more accessible for the people of the nation. His policies killed thousands of Native Americans. I think what I really want to get at is, evil doesn't exist in a vacuum. I hate to play devil's advocate here, I wrote this show, I don't have to, but I will anyways. While a lot of what Jackson is known for is horrific, he had some views that are seen as progressive even in this modern day for America. It shouldn't be surprising that historians even today argue whether he deserves to be seen as a complete menace or not. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're doing another episode I'm very excited for. Long ago, back in episode 10, I covered a figure who some people believe was the inspiration for King Arthur. Next episode, we're doing yet another historical King Arthur episode as we look at the story surrounding the Romano-British leader Ambrosius Aurelianus.